Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment. Weekly concert listings. Weekly event listings. The environment. Travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader. Free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. The Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and of course, every Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you by our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. With us today, as always, is Maya. Uh, It's a Tuesday conversation with Maya. Maya, what is on your mind today? Well, mostly rent control, evictions, and the results of the election from a couple of weeks ago. You're coming through loud and clear, and you're recording, and I'm happy to say this is going to be a triumphant conversation with Maya. All right, let's talk about uh, the whole issue of rents. Uh, I know this is on your mind. You're doing a story about it. Uh, lead us through this uh, A to Z. Yeah, so there's obviously a lot of people right now who uh, come tomorrow are not going to be able to pay their rent in full or aren't going to be able to pay their rent at all. And what I've been seeing online is um, a lot of calls to organize rent strikes, a lot of uh, information circulating to help people organize with their neighbors, to contact their landlords and communicate their concerns or their inability to pay. I've even seen signs around my neighborhood uh, inviting people to join a rent strike and uh, with contact information for um, other people who are thinking in the same vein or having to make the same kind of decisions. And um, the landlord community as well is is, uh, is very attuned to this and, and, and watching what will happen. Obviously, um, a lot of landlords are um, big corporations with big margins. Um, and that will affect a potential rent strike will affect uh, a big corporate landlord quite differently than a small mom and pop operation or a person that just has one or two um, investment properties or, or units. But what I what I don't see as much of out there, and what I really wanted to clarify to make sure that um, if people don't understand this, that they need to understand this, is that while there are there is a moratorium on evictions right now. There are no court hearings being held on evictions. Uh, as of yesterday, the order has been extended by the chief judge through May 18th. So the court system is going to be shut down for this kind of litigation until May 18th, and there's not going to be any eviction enforcement. However, that doesn't mean that people can't file cases. So Cook County has e-filing, obviously electronic filing, that doesn't require you to, to personally go um, anywhere to, to file your case. And there are you know, even if you were going to file a traditional method, you should, you, you could still do that. So even if you file today, even though you won't have a hearing before May 18th, landlords can still file an eviction action against tenants. And the reason this is important is because, I mean, look, some people are not going to be able to pay and their choices are, you know, to try to organize or not. And 
you know, the possibility of having an eviction case filed against them is like kind of moot because anyway, they don't have the money to pay. But uh, I think that it bears repeating that um, an eviction case, even if a case is filed, but it's ultimately dismissed. So if you don't ultimately get evicted, an eviction case filing will also stay on your rental history unless the case is sealed. And most of the time cases aren't sealed and it's quite difficult to get them sealed. So people uh, all the time that it, that in the couple of years that I've been doing this work and reporting on evictions, I see this all the time that people are affected by the fact that there was a case merely filed against them. Lots of landlords that they might want to run from down the line look at their history and say, oh, like, well, this person was taken to court. I don't really care that the case was dismissed. The fact that they were taken to court is a red flag. The other uh, aspect of this that's important is the fact that when a case is filed, the landlord will typically claim how much money is owed. And that claim of how much money is owed is collected by credit uh, reporting agencies often. So it winds up on your credit history that you owed this money, even if the case is never, if there's never a judgment on the case, if a judge never decides, yes, you should be evicted, and yes, this is how much money you owe to the landlord. If there's a judgment, then the landlord is entitled to collect that money. Um, there's all kinds of methods for that to happen. But credit agencies don't just collect information on judgments. They also often will scrape information off of counter sites related to claims that are made against people. So I think those are two pieces of information that people need to kind of bear in mind, that it, that it can affect your rental history and your ability to rent in the future, and it can show up on your credit report if a case is just filed, even if, it's, even if it ultimately doesn't result in an eviction. So obviously, post-pandemic, who knows? how lenient landlords might be, how the standards might change. Um, but uh, as of now, I just kind of feel like it's important to point out that just because there's a moratorium on eviction enforcement doesn't mean that a landlord can't still file a case against you. And uh, I had not realized that until you told us, so I appreciate you doing that. E-filings, it's a whole concept. I may do a whole show about it. I'm thinking this out loud as I say this, uh, Maya. Uh, so somebody could file a complaint uh, electronically through a computer to the county. Does that mean the uh, person he's filing the complaint against gets served? If if you're a tenant and you don't have an email address, you can't be served. Or if the um, the landlord doesn't have your email address, he can't serve yeah. you. So e-filing has nothing to do with how you're served. Uh, e-filing is just for the person that's initiating the court action. Uh, it's for how they, uh, it, it essentially cuts down on the amount of paperwork that's the actual physical paper that's flowing through the court system. So it allows people to draw up their, their, uh, their complaint, make a PDF of it, and submit that to the court system. However, for you to be served with the paperwork and actually for the court case to then run its course, there's still, you know, you, you're not, you're never going to get served over email ever. That's just like not a thing. The first thing that'll happen is the Cook County Sheriff's Office, an actual sheriff's deputy will attempt to make, to bring you the paperwork in person. You sign off that you received it. Um, if they are unsuccessful, then the court will usually authorize the person filing the case to pay a private detective to attempt service. Those folks typically are a little more tenacious and are a little more successful at serving than uh, the sheriffs are because 
the sheriffs usually come early in the morning and they make one attempt. Um, and then if that doesn't work, then there's a whole process where the court can authorize um, service through the mail or by posting. So like a, like the, that the summons to court will be like slapped somewhere in a public area or on, or on your door or slipped under your door. Right. Now, service can be achieved if anybody at the address over the age of 13 is present. So like a 13-year-old kid can take the paperwork in their hands and that's considered to be service. But as far as uh, email, that's not, yeah, nobody, like you are not officially served if you get something over email. Um, and, uh, but again, it can be filed and there can be no service that's even accomplished and still the case filing will be associated with your name. So as, as soon as the landlord initiates the case that gets your name into the system, which is then, you know, public and, uh, again, and credit agencies can also collect information about how much the landlord is claiming you owe them. Got you. I understand your point now. It's a good one. It's an important one. And, and people may not even be aware that the uh, process has been initiated and they may not be aware that the clock is ticking, so to speak, uh, on investigations uh, into their credit worthiness uh, and so forth. So, yes, this is an important information to get out to people. And this is probably happening now. Um, do you sense right now with uh, the coronavirus scare, with it living in the pandemic, that attitudes are tilting somewhat, Maya, uh, to be more favorable toward renters. Uh, so many times in the past, we've talked about this. Politicians, elected officials are hesitant to move too quickly on tenant rights because they're very sympathetic to landlords, particularly um, in Cook County. Uh, you've talked about this, and we've talked about this in the past, and you've written about it. Do you think that's going to shift a little bit be as a result of this crisis? Well, I think that w w the whatever the attitudes and the sympathies may lie, at the end of the day, it's like it's about where the power is. The landlord industry isn't going to be any less powerful in its lobbying efforts as a result of this. If anything, their lobby the people who have the lobbyists in Springfield, aka the the real estate industry, the um, the, the, the landlording industry, basically, those people are still going to have their land, their um, lobbyists in Springfield. And now, you know, there'll be a whole set of new um, sympathetic lines of arguments that they can deploy with um, state lawmakers, because obviously, you know, landlords are also hit by this. Their mortgages, they have to make mortgage payments, they have to make property tax payments, they have to um, keep up their buildings. They have, you know, nominally anyway, you know, there's regulations and requirements for the quality of uh, and habitability of the housing that they provide. So, you know, they're, uh, they're going to be affected for sure, but they also have a megaphone and uh, in the form of all these lobbyists, whereas tenants, I mean, tenants are going to be probably heard more than they were before on these issues. But one of the things um, that I'm seeing also uh, a lot of conversations about and calls for is for the governor to lift the state ban on rent control. Um, if For those who don't know, in 1997, the state of Illinois passed this uh, statewide ban on any kind of rent regulation for commercial or residential property. 
So if you're interested in why that ban got passed, I invite you to check out my article in the reader from a couple of days from a couple of years ago. It's called The Secret History of Illinois' Ban on Run Control. And essentially, uh, this was a uh, an effort, uh, a, a ban, the, the, the legis- the, the, even the text of the legislation came from the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is this ultra-conservative um, group that lobbies state legislatures to pass uh, things like stand-your-ground laws, various uh, free market-oriented legislation. So back in the mid-90s, they were really actively uh, trying to put in place these bans on rent control in states around the country. The text of Illinois' ban, uh, it's like a very, very short uh, piece of legislation. It's identical to a bunch of other states. And um, now uh, that there's active pushes for rent control that go back a few years, and now that there's an actual like big crisis, there's obviously lots of conversations about how important it would be to lift this ban to allow municipal governments to consider ways of regulating rent or putting, and nobody's suggesting putting caps on rent. But right now the conversation is about freezes. So, you know, perhaps um, some kind of rent holiday for the duration of the pandemic or whatever. None of that can happen without a lift on this, uh, a lift of this ban on rent control. Um, And a lot of people seem to think that the governor could uh, just unilaterally uh, lift this ban or overturn, repeal this legislation based on the fact that there the emergency uh there's been an emergency declaration in the state however um that's not the case and i've consulted with uh you know some people who are much more well versed on these issues than me uh in the legal community the emergency powers declaration in illinois does not would not allow the governor to decide unilaterally to undo the rent control preemption act so it would still require legislative um effort in both the House and the Senate, and both chambers are currently uh, not in session even. So uh, I feel like I understand strategically, um, politically, and from an organizing perspective why this demand is being made, particularly because J.B. Pritzker, back in 2018 when he was running for governor, had been uh, voicing his support for repealing the ban on rent control. Um, so people are kind of holding his feet to the fire now on that promise, but uh, it, this is not something that he could just unilaterally do even in the time of emergency like now. So that, I mean, what he could do is, you know, put his, put put pressure on the state lawmakers, but I mean, you probably might know about this better than me, but th- there would need to be a whole process to call the, the General Assembly back into session, right? Yeah, actually, I, I don't know all the, the uh, ins and outs of that one, and it's, it's, it's going to be a topic we're going to explore uh, later this week with some state reps about uh, convening a, what, a virtual General Assembly. Uh, so I don't know all the ins and outs of that. Yeah, like an emergency just... virtual over Zoom. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just we can do it over Zoom. Everybody loves Zoom so much. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I that's what I was getting at. I'm, maybe there will be a little more cover, if you will, uh, for the governor and the the state reps and the state senators to push for uh, lifting the ban. Uh, I would say a year ago, there it would be long shot 
uh, to get the ban lifted, but uh, maybe now uh, in this current situation, we can get it lifted. All right. Uh, speaking of state reps, state senators, there was an election. Uh, everybody's forgotten it. It was uh, on uh, March 17th. and uh, But you and I haven't forgotten it, Maya. Uh, and you, we were talking before we went on the show about some of the interesting results of that election. By the way, I, I wrote about how, how the turnout was so low. And I, there was an article in the paper, I just want to point this out, that as they continue to count the um, the ballots that have come in through the mail, it's ticked up. I think it's at last I saw my 35% turnout in the city of Chicago for the uh, March uh, primary, which is abysmally low. Uh, I, I think you and I would agree on that should be much, much higher, but it's, it's, uh, it's incrementally better. Uh, and I always point out it's, it's higher than it was in, uh, 2012 for a democratic primary presidential primary. That was when Barack Obama was, was running. And the excuse back then in 2012 was, was a nice day. It was a nice day in Chicago. And so people had alternatives. They didn't, feel like voting they wanted to go walk around along the lake that was still when you could walk along the lake Maya uh so anyway it's mm-hmm. roughly 35 percent what are some of the other uh points that uh you, you takeaways you have from the March 17th primary yeah so I uh, have been looking at the uh wonderful maps created by the I've been looking at the maps created by the City Bureau uh, data team, uh, they've released their interactive maps of the election results as they always do. And these are wonderful. If you go to citybureau.org, you can find the maps there. So basically they've analyzed every race by precinct. So they have really, really um, uh, detailed information of how the various races shook out. So I've been looking at these maps and one of the interesting so obviously the the main one being the Democratic uh, primary vote for president. So the areas of the city that went for Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden um, shake out pretty much how you would expect them to. So most of the black neighborhoods, if not all of them, went for Joe Biden. The far northwest side, far southwest side, all went for Joe Biden. Most of the north side ones for Joe Biden. The far north side, like Rogers Park area, and kind of the mid-north side, I guess I would say, so like 47th Ward, 44th Ward, I mean, yeah, 46th Ward, that, that part of town, sort of your neck of the woods. Those areas had a lot more precincts that went for Bernie Sanders. And then the Latino neighborhoods on the southwest side and the northwest side went for Bernie Sanders. And on the Southwest side, it's particularly interesting because the whole kind of area between Bridgeport sweeping Southwest towards Midway Airport. So this kind of old uh, machine stronghold that used to be dominated by people like Ed Burke and the old daily political machine and, you know, Madigan and his people. And those those people are still powerful in that part of town, but it's an increasingly Latino area. And uh, by and large, those wards and those precincts uh, all went for Bernie Sanders. Now, as I look at the map for the state attorney's race, I guess I was sort of assuming that the areas that where people voted heavily for Bernie Sanders 
those same areas would probably also go for Kim Fox because, you know, progressive, they're progressive voters. Although I guess I had never thought of the Southwest side as particularly progressive. But anyway, so looking at the, uh, looking at the results for the state attorney's race, what I see instead is the, that entire same area of the Southwest side of those traditional white working class and Latino working class neighborhoods, that same area that went for Bernie Sanders, also overwhelmingly went for Bill Conway, which I was really surprised by. I mean, all the black neighborhoods went for Kim Fox, all of the North Side went for Kim Fox, the sort of lakefront liberal progressive areas of the North Side. But the rich neighborhoods on the North Side, including, um, including the Gold Coast, that part of town, those folks went for Bill Conway, the far northwest side, the the wealthy white neighborhoods on the northwest side, the city worker neighborhoods, they went for Bill Conway. That's not so surprising. The southeast side, Sue Garza's uh, ward and that part of town, also pretty heavily Latino, they went for Bill Conway. And then, yeah, um, this this the same exact basically area of going from Bridgeport to Midway that was so heavily in support of Bernie Sanders also went for Bill Conway. So I don't know, I'm pretty perplexed by that. I'd be curious to hear your theories about why the same voters who would have voted for Bernie Sanders on the Southwest side also voted for Bill Conway. Well, there, this uh, feeds into a narrative uh, that Bernie Sanders supporters have been making uh, since 2016. And the argument that many Bernie Sanders supporters made, including people who come on this show, is that Bernie is better equipped than Joe Biden to defeat Donald Trump because Bernie's more popular with Trump voters than Donald Trump. This is an argument I've heard repeatedly from many uh, Bernie uh, Sanders supporters. I don't call them Bernie bros anymore. I learned my lesson. But uh, anyway, many Bernie Sanders uh, supporters have been articulating this, and I, uh, they, they, they're absolutely correct. Um, it, this was the case in 2016, and this was the case uh, in uh, 2020. In 2016, in particular, Bernie would beat Hillary Clinton in areas that then went to Trump. And uh, Bernie has an appeal to voters who are likely to vote for Donald Trump. And I've noticed this, that Trump voters, when they talk about the candidates in the uh, Democratic uh, race, are more sympathetic to Bernie. They feel that Bernie's more real, that Bernie's uh, not uh, your typical Dem, uh, you know, BSing you. Uh, and in fact, Donald Trump's sophisticated political operatives know uh, about this divide, and they're all, in their cynical ways, are constantly trying to appeal to Bernie voters. Not so much anymore, since the coronavirus ep- uh, pandemic has hit hard and sort of suspended uh, politicking, uh, overt politicking in this country. But they, Donald Trump's people would send out emails all the time, or text messages, excuse me, tweets, uh, saying, you know, once again, they're trying to uh, steal the election from uh, Bernie, uh, crazy Bernie, or whatever they called him. They mock him while they would be saying this, and they were trying to um, like play this divide because they knew that there was some overlap. When I had Nick Spazzato on the show, Alderman Nick Spazzato, who is uh, perhaps the most conservative alderman in the city council, uh, he admi- uh, we talked about how he, Nick, uh, voted for Donald Trump in the last election over Hillary Clinton, and he said it was because he despised Hillary Clinton. Uh, and But then he pointed out that he voted in the Democratic primary and that he voted for Bernie. 
He voted for Bernie over uh, Hillary Clinton, and he just thinks that even though he disagrees with Bernie's position, he thinks that Bernie is real and that Bernie is standing up for what he actually believes. He's not a phony. So I'm not surprised that there's overlap uh, between uh, Bernie, people who vote for Bernie, and then people who vote for Conway. The Bill Conway vote was, of course, uh, an expression against Kim Fox. We've talked about this many times. And um, yeah, but it's just interesting because can you can you like the, I guess this is it's just a testament to how much all of this is ultimately people responding to marketing, branding, and really kind of like having kind of like an emotional rapport with their with their uh, choices in the in the voting booth because. <laughs> Can you, like, if you actually are paying attention to the sort of ideology and the, and the, and, and the politics represented by these candidates, even in, within their identity and history, the Venn diagram between Bernie Sanders and his ideas and his history as a person and as a politician and as like a, a, a kind of uh, politicized person and an activist, right? If you have that on one side, uh, with his, you know, with his relationship, with his, with his travels to uh, South America and the Soviet Union and his kind of balanced analysis of the benefits of socialist governments in Cuba and elsewhere, blah, blah, blah. And then like Bill Conway, the son of the founder of the Carlisle Group, whose father dumped more than $7 million into this Cook County state attorney race. Like, it just ideologically should not make any sense that someone could punch both things in the, in the, when they're in that voting booth. But I guess, you know, it really just doesn't matter. It's all about how the people's very emotional responses to what, how, how these candidates make them feel. Yeah, well put. And you're right. Trying to make uh, sense out of voting habits and voting patterns uh, can drive you crazy. I had fun making fun of uh, Gold Coast voters on a similar point. The Gold Coast voter who voted for uh, uh, Joe Biden and then voted for Bill Conway. And I was like thinking, why? what would motivate a Gold Coast voter to vote for Bill Conway? And clearly, I don't, you know, one of the things was they uh, took very seriously Smollettgate, which I thought was the ultimate sign of hypocrisy because... The case against Kim Fox is that she took a call and made a call on behalf of a well-clouded person, which is something that people on the Gold Coast do all the time. So why are they mad on their high horse about Kim Fox playing the same game they do all the time? So I had a lot of fun making fun of them because they're outraged when Kim Fox did it, but they do it all the time. So... Maya, there's so much inconsistency on the part of voters. You're absolutely correct. Um, and and it uh, furthermore, you in that same uh, map that you were talking about, the race for Marie Newman, there's some interesting parallels to this too as as well. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. So 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 the uh, third district, the congressional third congressional district, where Dan Lipinski had been the incumbent and Marie Newman was running against him for the second time. She was a progressive candidate who came very close to beating him in 2018, and now went all the way this time around. So that third congressional district actually runs that pretty much that along that same swath of the southwest side 
beginning in Bridgeport and swooping southwest down into the Midway area. So again, uh, for folks who are having trouble visualizing what I'm talking about, citybureau.org, if you go on their website, you can then um, see on their front page, there are, um, mm, I can't find a direct link on their website, but if you go, okay, so if you Google City Bureau uh, election maps, or if you go on their Twitter, it'll come right up. So Marine, that, that third congressional district, um, it runs along that same swath of the Southwest side and the same wards and precincts that went for Bernie Sanders and for Bill Conway, people also voted for Marie Newman <laughs> over Dan Lipinski. Yeah. Except for right around Midway in uh, Garfield Bridge and Clearing, that's like really, really on the on the very kind of western portion of of this district, right, right, really close to Midway, right, like in in the really small part of this district that's still pretty heavily white. Other than those people, everybody else voted for Marie Newman and Bill Conway and Bernie Sanders. Yeah, Weird combination. It, it 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 is a bizarre combination to really understand what's going on. You'd have to take a further uh, look, a closer look, to see exactly like in this area, like who are the voters? Hispanic voters? Are we talking about older white voters? Uh, younger, more professional people that are moving into the neighborhood? Uh, hipsters? You know, all the different it's variations of, that you have that are living right, in this area. It's a lot of working class. It's a lot of working class people or kind of, you know, middle-class people, but people who might be city workers or teachers or whatever. It's a lot of working-class Latino folks that live in this in this district and in this part of town now. I guess I, I didn't realize before this that, that there was such strong antipathy towards Kim Fox. I mean, is it strong antipathy towards Kim Fox among that population, or they just really are convinced that Bill Conway was the right choice? Is it love for Bill Conway or hatred for Kim Fox? I That's would, what I'm curious about. Maybe even have Adolfo Mondragana on to talk about it. Uh, yeah, that would be a good topic to uh, uh, go over with Adolfo. Uh, by the way, he was one of the Bernie supporters. He loves Bernie, who I was thinking of when I was talking about how Bernie does well in Trump areas, because he's been telling me that for four years. Uh, to answer your particular question, my guess, it's antipathy toward Kim Fox that was ginned up by those commercials paid for uh, Bill Con by Bill Conway's dad. And uh, that that's what's driving, that's what drove Conway's vote, and that's what will be driving a Patrick O'Brien's vote, who's the Republican candidate, who seems to think that he can uh, pull off an upset. Uh, I did not believe Bill Conway was going to defeat Kim Fox, I made that prediction many times. One of the few times in uh, in my career, Maya, where is it correct in a prediction? Uh, and I will make this prediction now. Kim Fox will be reelected, all right? So there we, uh, if there is an election in November, that's a whole other uh, situation. Any other points you want to make about, on the map, the, about that map and that analysis, Maya, no. before I let you go? No, that's it. And by the way, uh, when people go to check out this map, there's also you can look at the races based on the various congressional districts, based on state house and state senate seats. So you, there's really a lot of details on there and everything is presented visually in a really beautiful way. So check out the City Bureau Interactive Primary Election Map.
for the 2020 primary election results. All right. As I speak, the train is going by. So life as we know it continues in the city of Chicago in the age of the coronavirus pandemic. Maya, thanks so much for taking time. Appreciate talking to you every Tuesday. Bye.